This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Michael Bennett worried earlier this week that his message may be lost should he not make the cut for next month's Democratic presidential debates. Well, on Thursday during a live town hall on CNN, the Colorado senator indeed had a chance to speak directly to the American people and tell them why he should be elected to the White House. I think that we have to build a big coalition of Americans, Democrats, Republicans and independents, to overcome the broken politics in Washington, D.C. It will never fix itself. It will only become more bitter and more partisan if we as a country don't come together and say we demand something better. And I think if we do that, we can not only beat Donald Trump, we can fix our broken politics in Washington, and we can leave our kids in this honorable country a future that we can be proud of. That's what's at stake in this election. That's why I'm running, and that's why I think I can beat Donald Trump. Bennett is one of almost two dozen Democrats vying for the party's presidential nomination. CPR News producer Anthony Cotton has been following the Bennett campaign, and he's with me now. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Avery. Would you say that Michael Bennett convinced America that he should indeed be president? I certainly wouldn't go that far. At one point in the program, CNN ran a commercial for Sunday when they're going to do three hours of town halls, an hour each with three different Democratic representatives. They just keep churning them out. And like we said, eventually they'll probably hit two dozen of these programs. So I just think it's really hard for the candidates to set themselves apart, even though Bennett's campaign said after the town hall that he did exactly that. I'm waiting for Politico to run a fact check on that. And of course, he's not the only presidential candidate from Colorado to get the town hall treatment. The former governor, John Hickenlooper, also had his own hour long turn in that particular spotlight. How did Bennett compare to the competition that's closest to home? Well, he didn't say that Bennett didn't say that he took his mother to see an X-rated movie like (laughs) Hickenlooper did during his town hall. But the former governor's name did come up. In the old days, uh, after I was in the private sector and before I was a school superintendent, I went to work for the city and county of Denver for a guy named John Hickenlooper. I don't know whatever happened to that guy, but (laughs) he was a terrible boss. Bennett, uh, of course, was kidding. He said uh, he he was Hickenlooper's chief of staff. When, when Hickenlooper was mayor of Denver. And during that time, Bennett said he spent 18 months working to revamp police oversight in the city. And it's interesting because now both Bennett and Hickenlooper have taken credit in their presidential campaigns for doing that, uh, helping to b- rebuild a relationship between the police and the Denver communities. I'm sure there are people in those communities who would still say there's a lot of work to be done on that front. Uh, this is Bennett speaking about his work back then, and why continuing it is important now. That was before these digital cameras and, and, and what they have revealed that, that the community always knew was happening, but that the police department often said wasn't happening, or the broader America believed wasn't happening. We now know that it is. And when I'm president of the United States, I can assure you that the Justice Department is going to take seriously every single complaint that comes from every single community where somebody has been treated unfairly because of the color of their skin. Of course, Hickenlooper has spent time recently trying to establish his chops on foreign policy, and that's something Bennett has worked on in the Senate. One area that's been in the news lately is the escalating trade wars. On Thursday morning, President Trump said he was raising tariffs on goods imported from Mexico. 
Did Senator Bennett give any indication of where he stands on this issue that's affecting many people in the state? He addressed the situation in China, where increasing tariffs had been receiving the bulk of the headlines at least before Thursday. Bennett actually admitted that Donald Trump was right to take China on over its policies, but then he quickly added that the president is going about it in absolutely the wrong way. We have an incredible opportunity to create alliances all over the world, from Europe through Asia to Latin America and to Africa to push back on China's mercantilist practices and benefit workers here in the United States and throughout the rest of the world. China is, is running on the law of big numbers. And it seems to me that uh, our answer there is to not go it alone. Our answer is to build coalitions all over the world to push back in a measured and thoughtful way. And that's not what we've had from this president. That clip came as part of a response to a question from the audience asking Bennett whom he would reach out to with his first three telephone calls as president. In keeping with the foreign policy theme, Bennett said he'd called the U.S. allies in Europe to help reestablish relationships with them, and he also said he'd call Israel for similar reasons. Bennett also said... And then I would call the heads of Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, and I would invite them to Washington, or I would go there and say, we need to help you solve the problems in your country so that we can end the kind of refugee crisis that's led to the American government in the name of the American people separating children from their families at the border of the United States of America. That should never happen again and never can happen again. Other headlines recently, the Mueller report looking into the role of Russia in the 2016 presidential election has been in the news the last few days. Did Senator Bennett say whether he favored impeachment proceedings against President Trump? He said he believes the report shows there's enough evidence to move forward and that Congress needs to do its job. But at the same time, like Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, it sounds like Bennett is looking for a more nuanced, big-picture approach. If we go down the road tomorrow and impeach President Trump, we're actually giving him a favor. That's what he wants, to be able to say he was railroaded. and, And then to have the impeachment from the House go to the Senate, where I guarantee you Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are not going to convict Donald Trump. But we have to go through the process. And to me, it's one of the problems with our politics today is we want to go out and and tweet and, and immediately react, a race to judgment. And we need to be more strategic than that. We need to be smarter than that. And I'm tired of losing to these guys. You know, I'm tired of losing to Mitch McConnell. I'm tired of losing to a guy like Donald Trump who never should have won the presidency to begin with. So I'm not saying we shouldn't follow this evidence where it leads, but I am saying we should bring the American people along for the journey so that they can also help us make a judgment about what the right thing to do is. It's not clear whether Bennett will qualify for the Democratic debates late next month, and that involves a combination of polling numbers and individual donations. On Wednesday, the party said that it is upping the ante for the third set of debates, which are scheduled to take place in September Will Michael Bennett be on either of those stages? At this point, you'd have to think it looks a bit discouraging. But we've talked to political analysts like Seth Maskett at the University of Denver, and he's told us that we're still really early in the process. It may not seem that way, but of course we are. You spoke with Bennett a few weeks ago, and he said that at this point in 2008 in the presidential race, the leading Democratic candidate was Joe Lieberman, and that Barack Obama was 30-some percentage points behind. So to use a boxing term, Bennett probably has a puncher's chance. 
maybe Thursday night will help him connect with some voters across the country. Thank you, Anthony. You're welcome. CPR News producer Anthony Cotton has been following Senator Michael Bennett and former Governor John Hickenlooper's presidential campaigns. He joined me to talk about Bennett's appearance Thursday on CNN Town Hall from Atlanta. To dominate the future, America must rule the skies. That's the message from President Donald Trump to the graduating class of the Air Force Academy. You could have chosen any school, any career you wanted, but you chose a harder path and a higher calling to protect and defend the United States of America. The president was in Colorado Springs Thursday to give the commencement speech to nearly 1,000 cadets who graduated and became second lieutenants in the Air Force. You choose to break old boundaries and unlock new frontiers and live life on the cutting edge. The first air combat happened just one century ago. You are the ones who will invent and define the next generation of air warfare. And you are the ones who will secure American victory all the time. Victory. To dominate the future, America must rule the skies. And that is what your time at this great academy has been all about, preparing you to do whatever it takes to learn, to adapt, and to win, win, win. You know, win so much, you're going to get so tired of winning, but not really. Not really. We never get tired of winning, do we? No. President Trump said no longer will we sacrifice America's interests to any foreign power. He pointed to new technology like hypersonic weapons and artificial intelligence, technology he believes will ensure America's military strength, including a new space force. In this stadium today are many of the future leaders who will develop the doctrine, strategy and technology to restore America's legacy of leadership in space. As you know, other nations are moving aggressively to weaponize space with new technologies that can disrupt vital communications and blind satellites that are critical to our battlefield operations. It is a time for America to reclaim the ultimate high ground and prepare our young warriors for today for victory on the battlefield tomorrow. It's a very different battlefield. It's a very different type of warfare. But we are so advanced, and when you see what's coming, you won't even believe it. And hopefully, you know what? Hopefully, we never have to use it. Peace through strength. Peace through strength. President Trump speaking to graduates of the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs Thursday. His is just one of the commencement speeches around the state we've been dipping into this graduation season. We'll have more in the weeks ahead. Our next guest's life has come full circle. Ned Breslin was abused and neglected as a child. Now he runs a center in Denver for children who've gone through similar trauma. And he advocates for new approaches to treatment. Breslin, who's the CEO of the Tennyson Center, will tell his story tomorrow at TEDx Boulder. He joins us now.
Hi, Ned. Hey, how are you doing? What's a memory of your childhood and the trauma you experienced that stands out to you? Well, you know, uh, like a lot of kids like me, memories are a little hazy and times are very confusing. But, you know, my, my house was basically very unsafe. My Every night when I would come home, uh, my parents would have been drinking pretty heavily. And my father's alcoholism went in one of a couple of ways. He either passed out or uh, became extremely angry and emotionally abusive or physically abusive or sexually abusive. Um, and I think the thing that I struggle with most uh, at the time and now is that my mother actually never did anything about it. She would wake up the next morning and say, you know, your father loves you or, you know, he's your father and things like that. And she would kind of sweep the horrors of the night before under a rug. Um, and so I, I, I spent, like a lot of kids, I spent a lot of time wondering you know, what I was doing wrong, why this was happening. Um, every kid, myself and all the kids who come through Tennyson, every kid wants to have that connection with their parents. And when it's broken, when it's dysfunctional and you're so young, it's really hard to figure out, like, what do I have to change? What do I have to do? When, in fact, there's nothing wrong with you. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes a long time to actually realize that. It takes a long time to realize uh, how alone you were. And for me, I still struggle with issues of abandonment um, that, yeah, kind of haunt me a little bit. Mm. And how would you sum up what life was like for you as a child? I think uh, I think my life as a child was just incredibly disrupted. And so I didn't do well in school. When I was 15 years old, uh, I was actually out of my family. I went to, um, to a, a family in Buffalo, New York that didn't know me. So it wasn't exactly a foster situation. My father had actually taken out an ad in a paper uh, saying, does anyone want my kid in one family uh, said yes, and so he dropped oh, me wow. off, and then they moved to New Jersey, and and so I'm in Buffalo with a family I don't know. Um, it didn't work out. I ended up spending a lot of time on the streets. Uh, I used to sleep under the bleachers of our high school, uh, and then take a shower every morning uh, before school. Um, and a, another student in my class uh, saw something was wrong. She wasn't exactly sure what. I was stealing a lot because I wasn't eating. Uh, so I stole from the cafeteria, I stole from a convenience store and all that kind of stuff. Um, and she invited me to their home, which was beautiful. And for the first time in my life, I kind of settled. Uh, and then the next year, I actually went to live with my hockey coach. And uh, the nice part of that story is that um, I actually fell in love with his daughter, which I don't tell foster parents <laughs> about because it's like the most uncool thing you can do. But she was phenomenal. And uh, we've been together actually for 37 years. So uh, so it's a good ending. Um, but that journey from complete disruption and alcoholism and then basically being thrown away, at least that's how I felt, thrown away as a kid, um, and then finding some stability and some ability to get my feet under me uh, kind of helped me change. And speaking about that full circle, you run residential and day treatment programs at the Tennyson Center mm -hmm. for severely abused and neglected kids, yep. as well as support programs in the community. How much did your childhood struggles lead to you wanting to help others? Yeah, I. you know, it's interesting. I actually spent uh, 27 years in the international water and sanitation sector, and we did this 
amazing work that uh, called Everyone Forever that was basically designed to not exclude anyone. And we did it at scale. 30 million people were helped in this radically new way. And truthfully, and it's what I'm going to talk about at TED, it it was driven from a childhood of abandonment and isolation. Um, and I realized about three years ago that while I loved water and sanitation... Um, and that wasn't in the United States. Right? No, it was in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. I had lived in Africa for 16 years. And um, I realized that what I was doing had actually nothing to do with water. It had to do with reconnecting and seeing people who had been isolated and marginalized in new ways. And so I decided to kind of leave the water sector after 27 years. It was a big decision. Um, but I wanted to give back more locally. I wanted to give to kids who were like me, uh, who have suffered severe uh, abuse and neglect and were experiencing trauma. And I am really blessed to have landed at Tennyson. And tell us about the children that you work with. So Tennyson, uh, Tennyson Center for Children was founded in 1904, actually, in Loveland, Colorado. It started as an orphanage. Um, and a typical kid who comes into Tennyson's orbit has been bouncing around child welfare for a while. Um, if they've been removed from their homes, which some of them have, uh, they've usually been bouncing between hospitals, foster homes, other residential facilities, um, sometimes failed adoptions, which are brutal. Uh, and they come to Tennyson and they're not only dealing with the trauma of their abuse, uh, but they're dealing with the fact that they have been abandoned so often, just like I felt. Um, they lack trust, which why would they trust anyone? Um, and what we do is we spend an enormous amount of time just stabilizing them, just being like, you're actually safe and let's get you through the night and let's, uh, let's get you fed and let's actually help you realize that, that you're okay right now. And then we can start doing more therapeutic work that starts to deal with the incidents that happened in the past and separating those from the behaviors that have manifest now. And our goal is to help all these kids reintegrate back into Colorado safely so that they can thrive. And you've taken on several initiatives during your time at Tennyson Center. I understand your main goal is trying to treat families before there's a crisis so ultimately children can stay home with their parents. Tell me more about that. Well, the saddest part, you read a case file on a kid who comes to Tennyson, and the saddest part of it is actually not the abuse and neglect that they suffered, but all the missed opportunities that happened earlier in their journey, which wouldn't have led to them falling into crisis. So you have families that are struggling, families that might have economic challenges, families that maybe are suffering with some uh, substance abuse, but don't need to be like wiped out, don't need to be separated could actually be supported much earlier. And so what Tennyson's trying to do is to catalyze a movement of organizations, including us, to basically say, can we imagine a world where we intervene there? A lot of it is like intervening at zero to five years old. Like it, people come to Tennyson when they're more like four, five, six, seven years old. But there are opportunities when they're zero to one, zero to three. Um, to help those families young. when they're when they're tiny, when those when moms and dads actually have a shot. Um, we work with a lot of families who haven't uh, disintegrated. We work with a lot of families where the problem is actually not in the home. And we work very hard to keep those families together. But if we're going to succeed, we have to get upstream. Um, we have to not wait for kids and families to fall into crisis and come into Tennyson's orbit. We have to stop it before it gets mm -hmm. that bad. And do you have a goal in mind for tomorrow's TEDx Boulder Talk? 
Well, uh, my goal is to get through it. <laughs> it's actually quite nerve-wracking. I'm a, I'm a pretty good public speaker, but this is this is a little bit different. Uh, the speakers are phenomenal, um, so it's a little intimidating. Uh, but I think my goal is to suggest to people a way that they can connect with others who are on the margins. And when we do that, um, we ourselves not only heal, mm. but we unleash people in a way that surprises us and we just become a better society as a result. Thanks, Ned. Ned Breslin is the CEO of Denver-based Tennyson Center for Children. The center works for se- with severely abused and neglected children in Colorado. Breslin will give a talk at TEDx Boulder. Before we go to break, it's poet Walt Whitman's birthday. He was born 200 years ago. Around the world, fans are reading from his thoroughly American poems. This includes my colleague Ryan Warner. Okay, I'm going to grab leaves of grass from my bookshelf here. And Walt Whitman has a great poem about age. Let me see if I can find it. Ah, here it is. It's titled Youth Day Old Age and Night. Youth, large, lusty, loving. Youth, full of grace, force, fascination. Do you know that old age may come after you with equal grace, force, fascination? Day full-blown and splendid. Day of the immense sun, action, ambition, laughter. The night follows close with millions of suns and sleep and restoring darkness. I love that age is compared to day and night and how there's an inevitability, but also a beauty to the arrival of old age and of night. Thanks, Walt Whitman. CPR's Ryan Warner at home reading the poetry of Walt Whitman. Whitman was born 200 years ago. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News. Mikelmo Canyon lies in southwest Colorado, adjacent to the canyon of the Ancients National Monument and the Utah border. It's home to author Chuck Greaves, and it's the setting for his sixth novel, Church of the Graveyard Saints. The novel explores the relationships and attitudes that shape the land. Chuck, welcome. Thank you, Avery. It's great to be here. You're not from Montezuma County. You lived in Los Angeles and you worked as a lawyer for a couple of decades, but you moved out to Mikelmo Canyon about seven years ago. Tell me about your ranch and vineyard that got you to move out to Colorado. Well, when my wife and I left Los Angeles in 2006, we actually wanted to move to this area, to the uh, Four Corners area, and specifically to McElmo Canyon, because we had some dear friends who had bought a ranch here. But we looked around and couldn't find a place that we liked. So we ended up spending six years in Santa Fe. But we always had the idea that we wanted to end up here in McElmo Canyon. And finally... We found the perfect place, which was right across the road from our friend's ranch. And lo and behold, I was always kind of a wine aficionado. And the property we ended up buying had a vineyard. So now I I split my time between writing novels and and tending a vineyard. And what does it look like out there? Uh, It's beautiful red rock country. If listeners are familiar with uh, southeastern Utah, places like Canyonlands or or Capitol Reef, McElmo Canyon is like a little slice of that kind of Red Rock Canyon country that extends across the border into southwestern Colorado. So let's talk about your book. 
The protagonist, Addie Decker, returns to her family's ranch after years of absence, and she quickly finds herself embroiled in conflicts about the land where her family has been ranching cattle for generations. But that ranch is also sitting on a large carbon dioxide deposit, and it turns out there are lots of opinions about what to do. Tell me about those conflicting views of land that are the center of this story. Well, the canyons are the ancient national monument. McElmo Canyon is the southern border of the monument. It is the home to the largest or densest collection of uh, archaeological ruins in the country. It's estimated there are about 30,000 ancestral Puebloan sites in the canyons of the Ancients National Monument. It also happens to sit on uh, one of the largest and purest CO2 repositories in the world called the McElmo Dome. So right away you have a conflict between archaeological resources and the pristine natural beauty of the monument area and the extractive industries that would like to mine the CO2 in the ground there. What they do is they, they, they drill for CO2 here and they send it in pipelines down to Texas where they use it for secondary recovery in the oil exploration business. So they, they pump CO2 from the ground here, send it to Texas and Oklahoma, and pump it back in the ground there to uh, boost oil production. Uh, so there's an inherent uh, tension between uh, uh, those two possible futures for the area, and that tension forms the backdrop for the story. So those very real environmental concerns and archaeological concerns really set the stage. Absolutely. And it seems like you have a lot of empathy for the different views that you represent in your story. You have ranchers and people extracting CO2, and you also have people who are enjoying the archaeology. Do you see yourself more in one of these than another? You know, once I finished my first draft of the book and I stepped back to sort of look at what I had here, I concluded that what I had was a kind of almost Shakespearean tragedy, where you had the Capulets of resource extraction and the Montagues of environmental protection. <laughs> and that formed a backdrop uh, for what uh, is a very personal story about a love triangle, basically. And the love triangle is between Addie Decker, who's our protagonist. She's a 25-year-old young woman who grew up in the Cortez area, left thinking she'd never come back. Uh, and uh, her environmental studies professor, with whom she's in a relationship, She does come back to her hometown with him, and sure enough, when she gets here, her old high school boyfriend is lying in wait, if you will, and he, as it happens, works for the company that's drilling CO2 adjacent to her family's ranch. So you have this very personal story of a love triangle set against the backdrop of development versus conservation. Do you think that development and conservation are really locked in this sort of Shakespearean tragedy where, of course, we know Romeo and Juliet, they both die tragically? Are, is the situation so fraught in Cortez? Well, I hope not. <laughs> I think as a county, Montezuma County, which is one of the poorest counties in Colorado, is going to have to make a decision here pretty soon as to which way it wants to go. And those are the issues that we explore in the book. And in the story, Addie's boyfriend, Bradley, is an environmental and sustainability professor at UCLA. And you write from his perspective, Bradley was standing quite literally at ground zero in America's battle against global warming and humankind's fight for survival. Is that just something that his character believes or is that something that you also believe about Southwest Colorado? Well, you know, I think a lot of times readers mistake the words that come out of a character's mouth for 
the opinions of the author. In this, in this case, the book is written from four different alternating points of view. So there's four point of view characters. One is Addie. One is Bradley, who's the environmental studies professor who thinks the way you just described. One is Colt, who works for the, the gas company, who thinks very differently than Bradley does. And the fourth is Addie's father, a man named Logan Decker, who's a rancher, who feels more like Colt does. He favors resource extraction. He sees it as the only hope for ranchers in his area where there's drought and there's depressed prices for beef. So very different attitudes are expressed by different characters. If you're asking me my personal opinion, I, I suppose I definitely lean more toward the environmental point of view and the idea that recreation and tourism is the future of the county. But I try to express all points of view in the book, and I try to give voice to all those different uh, opinions. And let's talk a little bit more about Addie, because this book really hinges on her decisions. How did her character come into being? I think that the germ of the book was this idea of coming home, the idea of going away and coming home. And I, and I experienced this personally. I mean, I, I when I turned 18, I left New York where I grew up, and I went to college in California and never came home. I think a lot of young people have this idea that they want to stretch their wings and, and shake off the dust of this small town and get out and, and conquer the world. And I certainly felt that way when I was 18. But I had an interesting experience when I would go back to my old hometown, which was on Long Island in New York. And I thought of it as this flat, boring, barren sort of place. But when I went back, I was surprised, seeing it through fresh eyes, how beautiful it was and how green it was and what a lovely place it was. And I think sometimes you have to get away from a place to get a new perspective on that place. And that, I think, was the genesis of Addie, the idea of this, this young girl who grows up in a small town and can't wait to go to the big city and conquer the world. And then when she is forced to come back five years later, she sees her town with a different set of eyes. And, you know, the book culminates in uh, a decision that she has to make about where her loyalties lie. Do they lie with her family and, and the ranch that was in her family for generations? Or do they lie with her new boyfriend or elsewhere? And like you mentioned, you wrote this from several points of view. And it seems like Addie's conflicted views about land are bound up with those relationships, mostly with men. And you've got her Bradley, her father, her grandfather, her ex-boyfriend. And each of them represents a different perspective on how to use or live with the land. Tell me more about those relationships. There is this notion that first love is, is, is the purest love, or that the first person you fall in love with is the person you'll never forget the rest of your life. So there was an element of that in the relationship between Addie and Colt, her high school boyfriend. She has a fraught relationship with her father for a lot of reasons. Her father, who raised Addie as a single parent, was almost a smothering presence in her life. And then there's Bradley, who's this erudite, uh, accomplished, older man who, to her surprise, you know, shows this great interest in her and sort of mentors her and represents a future that she envisions for herself. And again, at the end of the book, she has to make a decision between uh, those three people and, and where are they going to fit in her life going forward. And that's another part of the conflict that drives the book forward. And at the climax of the book, the Montezuma militia enters the picture, and it's a militarized group of ranchers, and they've got demands for the federal government, like no more national monuments west of the Rockies, no more endangered species, no more retiring grazing permits. It reminds me of the Bundy standoff. Is there a part of the Montezuma County that you're aiming to characterize by including a militia? 
Uh, not to characterize, but you know there is that element in the in the desert Southwest. There are very different and polarized attitudes about things like public lands, cattle grazing, and property rights and water rights and things like that. And people feel very strongly about those. Uh, so yes, you know there's the whole Bundy standoff, the Malheur standoff in Oregon, and other uh, militia type uh, activities. I use that device to sort of bring the story to a head. Addie and Bradley, their activities to try to uh, combat the expansion of oil and gas exploration in and around the canyons of the ancients causes this militia to react. And I don't want to spoil the ending of the story, but Bradley's character ends up being pretty slimy. He's fighting for the environment, but he's got ulterior motives. Is this story in some way indicting the tactics people from urban areas use to champion environmental protection in rural communities? I don't think that's specifically. I, I think the point there is that people aren't necessarily what you think they are. In the case of uh, Bradley, he was maybe not what you thought he was uh, all along. And it's really Addie's realization of that that is part of her character arc. And are these conversations about how to use land and what shapes the land, are they the sorts of conversations you're having with your neighbors? Those issues do come up from time to time. Uh, we just went through this whole Bears Ears issue across the border in Utah, where who should have access to public land? How should it be used? Uh, those are very much front burner issues in the Four Corners. Fortunately, the Canyons of the Ancients was spared when the National Monuments went under review, but Grand Staircase Escalante was shrunk considerably, and the Bears Ears was shrunk considerably. Those sort of hot-button issues inform the book, and they inform the discussions in this part of the world. People are talking about, yeah, well, what do we do with these places? Uh, do we preserve them? Do we transition to a more recreation and tourism type of economy? Or do we keep relying on, on the easy money uh, that comes from oil and gas exploration despite all the negative consequences. So those are very real issues for us here in the Four Corners, and I suspect they will be for many years to come. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Avery. Thank you. That's Chuck Greaves from McElmo Canyon in Montezuma County, author of Church of the Graveyard Saints, which comes out in September. Imagine sailing to the Arctic Ocean, only to have your ship freeze in the ice and then drift for a year. That's what dozens of the world's top climate scientists are working to have happen to them. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood introduces us to the Boulder researcher who's spearheading this effort. It's midday at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration building. Scientist Matt Shoup isn't thinking about the Arctic clouds he studies. He's standing in the parking lot thinking about bolts. I've never built a sled before. This is the first time. Expensive scientific instruments are bolted to a heavy metal sled. They measure temperature, heat, and wind speed. Shoup and his team must build two more of these contraptions before July. Today, he's decided that stainless steel bolts will do better in the Arctic. Decisions like these are critical. If something goes wrong, there's no overnight FedEx. Supplies and people come just every few months by boat. Does duct tape really work in the Arctic? Uh, duct tape doesn't work so well. 
Welcome to the challenging field of Arctic research. It's a harsh world where winter means months of darkness. Temperatures dip 30 degrees below Celsius. It's a desolate place where humans yield to wildlife. We've had similar stations like this uh, meet a polar bear before. And polar bears like to play with things. And so you can imagine a polar bear paw kind of probing one of these instruments it would cause some serious damage. Shoup was instantly drawn to the Central Arctic 20 years ago as a young researcher. That's the last time the world scientists did a similar year-long expedition. It was called Sheba. He was on that ship. And he says since then, he's seen climate change reshape the Arctic. The area where we used to be for Sheba, which used to be sea ice the whole year, is no longer sea ice. In the summertime, it's open ocean. So there's really big changes. All the data gathered will update mathematical climate models that scientists use to study this. Marika Holland works on these for the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which is also involved in the effort. There's going to be a lot of discoveries that come from that, from understanding how sea ice in this thinner, warmer Arctic interacts with the atmosphere, with the ocean, with the biology. Um, And those things are likely to be different than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Arctic temperatures have risen twice as fast as the global average over the last half century. Scientists want to understand what that means for marine life and biodiversity. There's also interest in economic opportunities, as shrinking sea ice opens up new shipping routes. But climate models are only as good as the data they rely on. Freezing a ship into the Arctic sea ice and letting it drift for a year, it provides this look at the system that is... Sadly, not something you can get any other way. The ship will serve as the central command post, loaded down with tons of scientific instruments. But it's really the three scientific sleds that form the backbone of the operation. Scientist Matt Shoup climbs up onto his prototype sled. He opens up what looks like a giant cooler, insulated and bolted to the flatbed. This is the brains right under here. You can see the, the brains of the operation. It's a data logger. The sled, with its tiny data center, costs $100,000. But the whole system uses the same amount of power as a single light bulb. And and that's another of our huge challenges, is how do we operate all this instrumentation here, all these different uh, measurements that we're making, how do we do that with as little power as possible? 20 years ago, a primitive version of the sled was nearly lost on the last expedition. It was bolted to the sea ice, which cracks and shifts. Scientists performed a dramatic rescue by helicopter. But I will say, though, we have some classic photos of the time. It's on this tilting piece of ice about to fall into the Arctic Ocean. So those are some big challenges for sure. This year's expedition will take advantage of technological improvements since then. Shoup hopes better instruments yield a clearer picture of the warming Arctic. Radars, LIDARs, all these very big systems that will be all over the ship and all around the ship. And so it's, it's very much the most complex uh, kind of observing campaign in the Arctic that's ever been done. Shoup and dozens of other climate scientists will assemble in Norway to begin their sea voyage this September. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Now a spoiler alert. If you watch RuPaul's Drag Race on VH1, but you have not seen Thursday night's season finale, you'll want to turn down the radio now. Okay, we gave fair warning. And the winner is Denver's own drag queen, Evie Oddly. I got the drag name Evie Oddly because people kept calling my performances weird, so I wanted a name that was even odder than everybody else's. 
and odds certainly paid off. Drag Race is the reality show in which people compete to see who can be the fiercest. They make their own costumes, do their own elaborate makeup, and lip sync for their lives. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with Evie Oddly, a.k.a. Jovan Bridges, when the season began. Welcome. Hello. How, how, <laughs> sh- how shall I address you for this interview? Are you going with Evie or Jovan? Uh, Evie's easier. Okay. Honestly, the only people who call me Javon birthed me. Birthed you. <laughs> <laughs> is, is Evie an alter ego, a better version of yourself? I wouldn't even say that Evie is necessarily an alter ego as it is a transformation into uh, the full acknowledgement of everything that I've worked for and uh, how I want my identity to be presented to the world. How would you describe Evie? Um, Evie is a concept. It's just uh, she's a platform in, in, in which I can express whatever I need to feel for the day, where I can explore all of these different identities and characters. It's, she's, she's how I relate to the human experience and, and take a step back and make a statement about it. And what about her style? Describe her appearance for us. um well she's always going to be pretty out there for starters Uh, a lot of drag is typically about female impersonation and my drag is a a lot more than that i'm going to look more like a crazy cartoon character an alien or or a giant blue person honestly what whatever i can do to shake people up what is the wildest most inspired look you've put together some of my favorites are the jellyfish look that aired on Drag Race because it's so insane. And then I've also got this trash gown look I made out of old fast food wrappers and stuff. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Was it all fast food you had eaten or did friends contribute? You know, it could have been mine if I had the foresight to save my trash that, that long, but... Thank God I just have lots of friends with really poor diets. <laughs> <laughs> will you describe the jellyfish look for us? Yeah, the jellyfish look was how I tackled the fringe runway assignment that was given to us. And I felt like a lot of uh, the other competitors in the competition were going to take fringe literally and just wear like fringe outfits that we could see. Mm. So I've... I. I decided to take this jellyfish, which is uh, a look I've I've turned a few times, making it out of uh, trash bags and creating these jelly-like tentacles, and it's just a, a tall pink fantasy from head to toe with all of these tentacles blowing in the wind and my cartoony jellyfish head that like bobs up and down. How did the judges receive it? I clearly remember walking down the runway and seeing RuPaul's mouth like wide open jaw on the floor and nothing could ever make me happier. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a lot of your creations can be done on a shoestring budget. Is that true? Um, That's definitely true. I mean, growing up, we were never particularly uh, stable financially. I've always been kind of near the poverty line. (laughs) So getting into drag and for me has never been about looking the most glamorous or the most expensive because that's never been something that was necessarily attainable for me. I've just always liked to work with the materials that I have around me before, before drag, I was a fine artist and I painted on cardboard. So 
<laughs> oh my goodness. How did you get into drag, Evie Oddly? Um, I got into drag because I actually had trouble uh, garnering support, attention, any anything really for my art. I went to art school and was set up to be an artist in the real world. And But what I wasn't really set up for is how hard it is to get just your average Jill and Joe to to care about art enough to want to to fund your art and to come out on a Friday night and go to a gallery instead of a club or a bar. It was just easier to get people places with alcohol. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's basically what the weekends are for. But yeah, it, I feel like drag is just a whole lot more engaging. So when, when I discovered it myself, I knew that I could combine the art that I've always loved and really pushed for uh, in a platform and in an interactive manner that people really seem to respond to. It's interesting. I just went to the Dior exhibition at the Denver Art Museum, and there was a, a gown there that had been hand-painted. And I wonder uh, if any of your your uh, painting skills literally make it into your outfits. Yeah, um, they, they do all the time. Uh, Luckily, because I had such a long time at art school to learn all these different techniques and, and kind of soak up uh, the ability to try new things, I've, I've always taken little tools and little skills I've learned in making almost every single outfit, even, even just starting at painting my face. When I paint my face, I'm taking all the same skills I learned about portraiture. And it's just kind of cool that uh, art, skill wasn't, or art school wasn't a waste for me. <laughs> Uh, Evie Oddly, let's listen to your introduction on RuPaul's Drag Race. I think what sets me apart from other queens is just my thought process. The way I, I tackle challenges in life is by going for the scrappiest, dirtiest, like most back road option and then making it work somehow. <laughs> Which gives a sense that you're resourceful. But I'm curious what, what your drag weakness is. Like, what aspect of this are you bad at? Or are you still perfecting? I mean, I'm still learning a lot. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of skills that I'm not 100% refined yet. But An example? I, I to, um, like, I, I'd say, for one, I'm not good at being anything other than myself so i can i can change my character to fit certain things but i'm not i'm not particularly skilled at like let's say impersonations or like mm. free form situations where i'm really supposed to like be somebody else <laughs> how do you think the denver drag scene and the colorado drag scene are doing um i have to admit that when i started i was not impressed a part of the reason i I got into drag in the first place is I fell in love with this TV show and saw all the expression that was happening there. And then I didn't see that in the community around me. But since then, especially just within this last year, I see a lot of people striving to push their art, to challenge themselves, to take their drag to new places and new cities and ideas that are bigger than just pleasing a local Denver crowd. Before we go, can I run my uh, drag name by you if I were to do drag? Oh, yes, please. Okay, it would be Miss Anthrope. Misanthrope. No, like... not a misanthrope. Miss... Okay. <laughs> does it does it meet your approval, Evie? It, 
It definitely does. Okay. You're you're obviously a highbrow queen. <laughs> I take that. <laughs> Show me what you got. Ryan Warner speaking with Evie Oddly in March. Again, another spoil alert. If you're just tuning in and haven't seen the finale, turn down your radio now. Oddly, a.k.a. Jovan Bridges, is from Denver and just won season 11 of the show. Congratulations. And that's Colorado Matters. This Friday, I'm Avery Lill. Thanks for joining us. This is CPR News. CPR News.